ho. guys welcome to the it's a wonderful podcast live episode presented by the tragedy of cinema podcast uh, about a month and a half ago i came up with an idea um since jerry and tracy do their hillbilly horror stories halloween episode i figured i'd like to do something around christmas time so i've invited a bunch of my podcasting friends including jerry and tracy from hillbilly horror stories uh tim mullins with hhh media uh Leslie Fear from Because I Want to Know, James and Beth from Yesteryear Podcast, uh, Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances, ADZ from the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast, the Twilight Zone series, and I believe there's one or two more. I don't know their official names because uh, they were all be given to Mr. Tim Mullins. Um, and by the way, Tim, um, our thoughts and prayers are with you uh, with the loss of your dad, especially at this time of the year. Uh, we love you, brother, and we appreciate every single thing that you do. Now, just as a sort of a disclaimer and an opening to this, um, I have not heard everything that will be discussed or listened to. Um, I gave free reign to do whatever they wanted on this podcast episode because everybody wanted to make sure, you know, maybe somebody didn't have family members or they didn't have uh, friends or they maybe just feeling alone. Uh, well, these are your podcast friends and we want all of, and we want you all to know that we love you guys and that we wanted to give you something a little extra special this Christmas. Um, 2020 has been a dumpster fire, so we wanted to do a little something extra special. Maybe, who knows, this may turn into an annual thing. I'm hoping it does. And maybe you guys just needed somebody to talk to. Um, all of our messengers are always open. Each and every one of these people will be happy to talk to you if you don't have anybody. Um, but just wanted to let you know that we love you. Now, as a disclaimer, um, since I haven't listened to any of these, I'm, I'm sure there's probably going to be some language. Um, and parents, if you have children, you might want to listen to this before... Uh, beforehand before you listen with them because uh, I've heard that we'll be discussing some different traditions and folklore in other countries um, as well as uh, some uh, short stories and stuff that may not be suitable for younger children um, especially with the folklore and and certain aspects of Christmas that are just uh, mysterious and secret if you will Um, so just be prepared for that Um, also I want to send out a special thank you to each and every one of the people that participated in this podcast um, and this episode, we wanted to make it generally um, enjoyable for everyone. Um, that's why I am going to be releasing this to all the other podcast uh, people that participated in this so they can put it out on their feed and get the, the downloads for it too. And once again, if you would, if you haven't heard any of these people before, um, go to their each of their uh, podcast pages, uh, their episodes on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Play, wherever you can find them. And uh, go give them a download and leave them a five-star review and tell them that the Tragedy of Cinema sent you. Um, so with that being said, I have a very special guest that will be helping me emcee this podcast episode. I have contacted none other than the one and only Santa Claus. That's right. Santa will be emceeing 
this podcast. So, Santa, we thank you for your help. We know you're busy, but thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to help us get this out to the people. And we just wanted to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So just sit back, maybe start a fire, grab a hot chocolate, throw some marshmallows in it, or a stronger drink, as some of you probably prefer. And just sit back and then let us entertain you for however long this goes, an hour, two hours, three hours, however long we get out of this. So once again, we just want to say thank you and hope you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. And now here's my friend, Santa Claus. Don't tell me again. How does this thing work? Turn it on. Is it on? Is it? Son of a... Oh, ho, 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 ho. Thank you, James, for that lovely introduction. There would be a little special gift for you. So, have you been good? I know most of you have. Well, most. <laughs> As you can tell, we are very busy up here in the North Pole. As we're building all these gifts for all the good boys and girls. And maybe... Just maybe some of the good adult boys and girls too, but let's get on with the show. First up is Jane, with a special guest, his father. <laughs> Two good boys indeed. Take it away, James. Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Wonderful news, for when all these wonderful people get into the swim, it's a wonderful life. 
For never before has any film contained such a full measure of the joy of living, the drama of living, and above all, the glorious romance that makes this such a wonderful life. Don't you ever get tired of just reading about things? Yeah. Hey, what are you doing tonight? I don't want to get married to anybody, you understand? I want to do what I want to do. And, and you... Alright guys, welcome to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. It's a wonderful podcast life episode. I'm your host Jimbo, and today I am joined by none other than Art Toast, otherwise known as my dad, where we'll be discussing It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, first and foremost, we hope you're having a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. 2020 can be over as far as we're concerned, it's just been a dumpster fire, so dad, before we get started... And the laughs continue because it's taking about 20 minutes to get started. I'm on my best behavior. Yeah, and he's on medication, so this should be really fun. All right, Dad, so let me throw you a question. Where would you rank George Bailey from this movie as far as Christmas uh, characters of all time? Um... He'd probably great right up there, right behind uh, Jim Carrey as the Grinch. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, he rates up there pretty good. Um, probably I mean, somebody did about about as good or just as good as uh, is, is that is like from the White Christmas episode with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. No, no, no. But I'm not saying as far as the movie. I'm saying the character. Like Ebenezer Scrooge would obviously be up there. Um, you would have, uh, who else? Uh, the Grinch would be up there. You would have, what, Charlie Brown would be up there. Where does George Bailey fall as far as characters? You have Frosty. You have Santa. Well, I would put uh, him ahead of the Grinch and Ebenezer Scrooge. You put him up ahead of Ebenezer Scrooge? Yeah. Really? Yeah, because it's it's they're a different style. He was always, George Bailey was always good, but it just showed that Ebenezer Scrooge showed how people could change. So, um, I'd, I'd probably put him right up there at the top. All right. Well, I hope Santa's not listening. <laughs> yeah, Maybe George Bagley's number two. <laughs> yeah, so there you have it. Straight from our toast's mouth. Uh, so, Dad, let's go ahead and kick it off. Uh, my dad's filling in for Terrence. Uh, Terrence's schedule, I couldn't, we couldn't get a hold of each other, so I had to get this done to get cramp, uh, cramped together and uh, get uh, edited and all that. So, Dad, take it away. All right. It's a wonderful life. Release date, January the 7th, 1947. That's even before you were born. It was. <laughs> uh, budget was $3.18 million. At the box office, it made $3.3 million. Uh, in, in the uh, today's inflation, it would be $38.5 million. The director was Frank Capra. The writing cre- credits is Francis Goodrich, screenplay, Albert Hackett, screenplay, Frank Capra, screenplay, Joe Swirling, additional scenes, Philip Van Philip Van Dorn Stern, the story, uh, Michael Wilson, contributor to screenplay, uncredited. 
and in the Academy Awards in 1947, got the Best Picture and Best Actor in a Leading Role in James Stewart. Uh, nominee for the Oscar, Best Director, Frank Capra. Best Sound Recording, John Alleberg. Best Filming Editing, William Hornbeck. The Golden Globes, 1947, winner of the Golden Globe, Best Director, Frank Capra. The Cinema Writer's Circle Awards, it was the best, uh, in 1949, Best Foreign Film. Yeah, that's from Spain. Those awards were from Spain. Oh, Spain. <laughs> National Board of Review was winner of the top 10 films in 1947. Uh, National Film Preservation Board, uh, 1990, winner for a National Film Registry. New York Film Critics Circle Awards <laughs> in 1946, nominee for Best Director, Frank Capra. Online Film and Television Association in 2002, winner for a motion picture. Uh, Young Artist Awards in 1994, um, Jimmy Hawkins, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. The synopsis is an angel named Clarence is sent from heaven to help a businessman who is contemplating taking his own life. Clarence Shun soon shows the man what his life would be like if it never existed. All right. And also, this this movie is, uh, we just looked it up, and it is an AFI, is the number 11 movie of all time. Um, so I'm going to dive into the cast. One of my personal favorite actors, probably the, my favorite, uh, James Stewart, otherwise known as Jimmy Stewart, plays the main character, George Bailey. Uh, his wife, Donna Reed, uh, plays Mary Hatch, or his wife, Mary Hatch. It's not his, his wife. Uh, Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter, Thomas Mitchell as Uncle Billy, Henry Travers as Clarence, Beulah Bondi as Mrs. Bailey, which we'll find out later she played uh, Jimmy Stewart's mom in five other movies, uh, Frank Phelan as Ernie, uh, Ward Bond as Bert, Gloria Graham as Violet, H.B. Warner as Mr. Gower, Frank Alberson as Sam, Sam Wainwright, Todd Carnes as Harry Bailey, Samuel S. Hines as Pa Bailey, Mary Treen as Cousin Tilly, Virginia Patton as Ruth Dakin, Charles Williams as Cousin Eustace, Sarah Edwards as Mrs. Hatch, Bill Edmonds as Mr. Martini, Lillian Randolph as Annie, Argentina Brunetti as Mrs. Martini, Bobby Anderson as Little George, Ronnie Ralph as Little Sam, Jean Gale as Little Mary, Janine Ann Roos as Little Violet, Danny Mummert as Little Mary Hatch, George uh, Georgie Noakes as Little Harry Bailey, Sheldon Leonard as Nick, Frank Hagney as Potter's Bodyguard, Ray Walker as Joe from the Luggage Shop, Charlie Lane as the Real Estate Salesman, Edward Keene as Tom which from the Building and Loan Customer, and the Bailey Children. You had Carol Coombs as Janie, Carolyn Grimes as Zuzu, Larry Sims as Pete, and Jimmy Hawkins as Tommy. So, Dad, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of a walkthrough of the movie um, as far as hitting the high points or setting up the story before we dive into some of the other stuff. All right. I was, I was talking to Jimbo earlier that if you've never seen this movie, uh, 
just hang with it because at the beginning you see these two stars talking to each other. They're angels, but they're just flashing stars talking. You'll think, oh no, what in the world is this? And you may you may turn it off, but it's just setting up what's about to take place. And it goes back to uh, uh, George Bailey's childhood to give some information that they're teaching Clarence because he's got to come down here to work with uh, George Bailey because he's in a mess and, and even thinking about taking his own life. And they said it's for Clarence to get his wings, and how many times has he tried to get yeah, his wings? Yeah, a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't got his wings, but uh, they said that if he can help George Bailey, he'll, he'll have no problem getting his wings. And so it sets up the story, and it starts in his childhood and tells how he gets his, uh, he says his brother from drowning, and uh, he, uh, he was ice skating, sliding on sleds down, actually, and onto a lake. His brother falls through and he dives in and saves him, but he misses it. He loses his hearing in one ear. He works at an old um, soda fountain place, that, like in a drugstore, uh, that you can't find anymore like that. And as a, a young boy, and the, uh, the the owner of the drugstore, he was drinking. His brother had died, and uh, he wanted him to take a prescription. I ain't going to no, tell it's you. Actually, his son. His son died from the flu. Yeah, the flu. And uh, that's pre-COVID days. <laughs> but um, anyhow, not to give the story away. And then it goes in and it comes into his life now. He's wanting to travel the world. Um, his dad owns the business that's been in the family. And so uh, as he gets ready to leave, his dad has a stroke. And so he goes back and ends up not going. And he stays there for another four years waiting for his other brother to come back from college. And so then he meets, I ain't going to go in all that. You going to tell the story or me? <laughs> go, go ahead. Well, the, ever since his childhood at the Soda Fountain, there was a girl that always come in and just wanted to be his girlfriend named Violet. And there was another girl there named Mary. And Mary has always been infatuated with him, which these two carry out throughout his whole entire life. You come to find out later on. So so basically, they're, they're there. His, I believe, doesn't his dad die? Yeah. And uh, they're they're getting ready to give away, uh, they're getting ready to do whatever. The Mr. Potter, who's the evil bad guy in this, basically owns this uh, other building, or they gave a loan out to uh, George's dad to save his uh, loan and thing. But uh, George's dad was always the real go-to guy. He would always help people out. He was considerate. He'd always give them breaks and cuts. And Potter, he's just a straight businessman. But throughout this whole entire thing... Um, you come to find out that Mary and, and, and George, they end up falling in love. Um, they actually uh, end up getting married. And on as, on their wedding day, when they get married and they're leaving, uh, and they're in their taxi cab, they notice a bunch of people running towards the savings and loan. And the cab driver's like, I don't know. He's like, I've never seen anything like this. He said, the only time I see something like this is when it's, something's closing down or whatever. So George gets out of the car and Mary's like, no, please don't go. Uh, let's just go on our honeymoon. He's like, I got to go. So he takes all the money that they have saved for their honeymoon because Potter has called and called the loan on the bank. They want it by midnight um, or they're going to close their doors. So they go in there and uh, he uses all of his honeymoon money to pay everybody out. And just and I think by the time they're done, they only have like two dollars and 15 cents. He's like, put it in the vault, you know, so to save it. Um, and so they're still in business. Um well, come to find out, um, business is getting back, uh, going good. And, um, the, uh, Harry has, I think Harry's his brother, uh, has won like a medal of honor or something in the war or something. And it's in the newspapers and all that. Well, the, I think it's his uncle, um, has all the money in the bank. He was going to make a deposit at the bank and it's like $8,000. 
And he's showing the paper to Potter. He's like, look at this. Business is good to Potter or whatever. Well, come to find out that uh, I forget if he drops his newspaper or something and they end up switching newspapers. So now um, he went to go deposit that money and he doesn't have any money. And he doesn't know what to do. He retraces his steps and he goes all the way back to tell uh, George. But in the meantime, it was actually in Potter's newspaper. He opens it up and he sees it and he doesn't say anything to anybody. So now they're in a real predicament because they retrace all their steps and everything. And um, finally, George goes and talks to Potter about, you know, um, hey, uh, I, I need I need help or whatever. Uh, so you want to go ahead and take it away from here? Or? Okay, he needs he needs help, but he don't want to give him no help. And um, somehow, him and Clarence, I, I, maybe I'm getting ahead or behind the story here. Yeah, Clarence isn't there yet. Right. Okay, is that where he goes to the... Uh, is that where he goes to the, uh, like a restaurant or something? Yeah, it's the bar, and he gets drunk. Yeah. Uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, I want to say Martini's, but I think Martini's the actually owner. It might be the name of the bar, too. Um, and he gets drunk and he's like, please, God, you know, whatever. And um, he gets drunk. So then he gets in his car and that's when he runs and crashes into a tree. And he gets out of the car and he runs over to this bridge. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm shaking oh, the table there. I yeah, yeah, yeah. So he goes over to the bridge and he's like, look, he's like, I've lost everything. Because he goes home first. And uh, before he goes to the bar, he goes home and the girl's practicing the piano. He yells at his kids. He yells at his wife. He yells at everybody there, you know, about, you know, everything. And he's just like, I just wish everything would go away, blah, blah, blah. And so he leaves, goes, gets drunk, gets in his car, wrecks his car. Um, and then he goes to this bridge and he's just like, you know, I'm, I might as well just end it all. And right when he's getting ready to jump into the uh, river, <laughs> some Clarence, you come to find out, is a, an angel. And he jumps into the thing and George jumps in after him to save him and pulls him out. Um, so they're getting dried off or whatever um, in the thing. And um, this is where George is like, you know, um, I was, sometimes I just wish I was never born at all. And Clarence is like, okay, <laughs> so now... Uh, uh, you hear like the wind, the wood doors bust open, the wind blow through, and now George Bailey has never been born. Um, so he goes back, walks back to see where his car was wrecked. There's his car's not there. The tree's still standing. He hadn't hit the tree that's like what 400 years old, I think. And he talks to the guy. He's like, "Look, Mister," he's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." He's like, "This thing." So he goes back to the bar, and it's a new owner. I think his name's Nick. Um, he's like, "Look," he's like. I don't know you, you know, and then um, who is it? Mr. Gowler, I think, walks in. He's just like a bum now and all that um, drunk or whatever. And they're all making fun of him. So basically they throw George Bailey out and George doesn't know what's going on. And Clarence is like, look, I told you. He's like, your life never happened. This is what you wanted. You have never, it's never happened. Um, he's like, well, you know, you're crazy. So he, he runs back to, um, uh, where does he go home, I think? He goes back to the town, don't he? And nobody... Right, well, it's changed because it's now Pottersfield, Pottersville or yeah. whatever. And it's it's all like done up in like fancy lights, kind of like Las Vegas. Um, it's all got the neon lights. Uh, you know, there's something that's like the jitterbug and all that. Um, and he doesn't understand what's going on. Um, so he... The jitterbug was a dance and not a cell phone, I think. Right, and it was, <laughs> it was actually in The Wizard of Oz before it was cut. They did the jitterbug with the, the, the with the trees. So he ends up going um, back to the house that Mary and him always wanted. Goes inside. Nobody's there. Um, and then you have the cops. You have Bert and Ernie, which you come to find out. It might have been a play on Sesame Street we'll get to. Um, but, you know, they're going to arrest him. Well, he runs away. Um, he runs back downtown and sees somebody. And the cop, you know, he, he pushes, punches the cop or something. And he takes off running and gets shot at. 
And so he's like, he's trying to find Mary. He goes back home uh, to see his mom. His mom doesn't know who he is. She's like, you know, I, I've only had one son. His name was Harry. And close is where Clarence tells him, well, you weren't there to save him when he fell into the lake. He's, he's dead. It was his only son. So um, now George is getting really because He's like, yeah, I just got to find Mary. You know, if I find Mary, he's like, all this will make sense. And um, actually, I think when the police shoots him, actually, he had found Mary and she's an old widow and at the library. And so she runs around and she's running through the crowd in the streets. And that's where she runs into the cop. She's like, he's after me. I don't know. He's crazy. And that's where he pulls out the gun and tries to, to shoot him. And he runs away. So he really doesn't know what's going on. And by this time, you get all the way back um, to the bridge. And, he's like, and he says something like, God, please help me or whatever. And, and then you see it start to snow again. So you know he's back into the, the real body or whatever. And he, of course, uh, goes home. And he runs through the streets happy. Um, he goes home and he, you know, he loves his kids and his wife and all that. So all the townspeople heard he was in trouble. And they all just start coming bringing money and dumping it on the table and donations and all that. Because Potter was going to have him arrested for embezzling the $8,000. And all these people, this, the town comes together and gives him all this money. So that was a quick run through. There may have been some stuff um, his, in or out of there too. Doesn't his brother come? Yeah, his brother ends a up bunch coming. Of money at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He because yeah. he wasn't supposed to be in yet. He came back from the, the army or whatever. So um, that was a quick run through. Um, I didn't want to give the whole movie away. Um, seeing this is going to be a long episode because it's our Christmas episode. Um, but that was just a quick run through. Some of the scenes are probably jumbled together, um, and. Dad hasn't watched it in probably 40 years. No. <laughs> um, it's probably been two or three since right. the last time I've seen it. So um, we'll go ahead and run through some of the interesting stuff that I found. Um, for the scene that required Donna Reed to throw a rock through the window of the Granville house, uh, which is the house that they wanted, uh, director Frank Capper hired a marksman to shoot it out on cue. But to everyone's amazement, Donna Reed broke the window her- herself because she had played baseball in a high school and had a strong throwing arm. So there you have it. Um, as Uncle Billy drunkenly leaves the Bailey home, it sounds as if he stumbles into some trash cans on the sidewalk. In fact, a crew member dropped a large tray of props right after Thomas Mitchell went off screen. Uh, Jimmy Stewart began laughing, and Mitchell quickly improvised, I'm all right, I'm okay. Director Frank Capra decided to use this take in the final cut and gave the stagehand a $10 bonus for improving the sound. <laughs> Uh, the gym floor that opens up in the middle to reveal the swimming pool underneath was filmed at Beverly Hills High School in Beverly Hills, California. Uh, it was real, and it's still in regular use. The same gymnasium moving floor was used in a similar school dance scene in Whatever It Takes in 2000, 54 years later. Jimmy Stewart was nervous about the phone kiss scene because it was his first on-screen kiss since his return to Hollywood after the war. Under director Frank Kappa's watch fly, Stewart filmed the scene in only one unrehearsed take. And it worked so well that part of the embrace was cut because it was too passionate to pass the censors. <laughs> Uh, the director, uh, Capra, said this was uh, his, his favorite of all of his films. Uh, the set for Bedford Falls was constructed in two months and was one of the longest sets that had ever been made for an American movie. It covered four acres of Arkeos and Sino Ranch, included 75 store buildings, uh, Main Street, a factory district, a large re- residential and slum area. Uh, Main Street was 300 yards long uh, three and three whole city blocks. While filming the scene in which George prays in the bar, Jimmy Stewart was so overcome that he began to sob. Frank Capra later reframed and blew up the shot because he wanted to catch the expression on Stewart's face. That is why the shot looks so grainy compared with the rest of the film. Films made prior to this one used cornflakes painted white for the falling snow effect. <laughs> uh, 
Because the cornflakes were so loud, dialogue had to be dubbed in later. Director Frank Capra wanted to record the sound live, so a new snow effect was developed using fomite, which is a firefighting chemical, soap, and water. This mixture was then pumped at high pressure through a wind machine to create the silent falling snow. 6,000 gallons of the new snow were used in the film. The Archeo effects... Uh, department received a class three scientific or technical award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences um, for the development of the new snow. In White Christmas, they used asbestos. Asbestos, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, during the bank run scene, director Frank Hopper rehearsed the scene between uh, James Stewart and Ellen Corby several times. When Corby's character was asked how much money she needed, she replied $17, which was in the script. Just prior to the first actual take, Capra took Corby aside and told her to give Stewart an odd number, thinking it would be funnier. When she said 1750 to Stewart, he was taken off guard and impulsively kissed her, which was not in the script. Stewart's spontaneous reply was so genuine that Capra left the scene in the final film. <laughs> Uh, this was ranked as the number one most inspirational movie of all time by the American uh, Film Institute in 2006. Um, also, uh, what you come to find out is a lot of, uh, of the family members... Uh, donated photographs for their house, uh, for the banks. And all that. Um, yeah, there's a photograph of Jimmy Stewart at the age of only six months, which was actually donated by his parents, um, which was included in the Bailey home set. Lionel Barrymore convinced Jimmy Stewart to take the role of George Bailey, despite his feelings that he was not uh, yet up to it so soon after returning from World War II. Um, as I said earlier, this is one of the uh, five times that Beulah Bondi portrayed Jimmy Stewart's mother. The others are Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 1939, Of Human Hearts in 1938, Vivacious Lady from 1938, and The Jimmy Stewart Show, The Identity Crisis in 1971. Now, how many of those have you seen? Probably none of them. I've heard of one. The uh, Mr. Smith Goes, goes to Washington. Washington. Yeah. That's a good movie. Um, actor and producer Sheldon Leonard said in a review that he only agreed to play Nick the bartender so he would have money to buy baseball tickets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, probably a Yankees fan at that. Um, according to Robert J. Anderson, H.P. Warner really was drunk during the scene in which Mr. Gower, Gower slaps young George. Warner slaps real and calls real blood to come from Anderson's ear. After the scene was finished, Warner hugged and comforted Anderson. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Stewart cited George Bailey as being his favorite character he ever played, but stated in several interviews that Harvey from 1950 was his favorite movie in which he starred in. The part of George Bailey was originally developed at another studio with Cary Grant, earmarked for the role. When Frank Capra inherited the project, he rewrote it to suit Stewart. Despite being set around Christmas, the film was actually filmed during a heat wave. It got so hot that director Frank Capra gave everyone a day off to recuperate. Uh, this was Donna Reed's first starring role. Um, the film takes place from 1919 to December 24, 1945. Uh, Frank Capra strove to make scenes as real as he could for actors. Thus, the first kiss between James Stewart and Donna Reed was shot at the same time as the other end of the phone conversation with Sam Wainwright on a different set in Archeo's Path Studio. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's performance as George Bailey is ranked number 8 on the Premier Magazine's 100 Greatest Performances of All Time. This was the first and last time that Frank Capra produced, financed, directed, and co-wrote one of his own films. Uh, the pharmacist Gower's son's death um, at college is attributed to influenza in the telegram that young George reads, dated May 3rd, 1919. 
1919 was the second year of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which was widely spread on the filthy battlefields of the First World War, claiming millions of lives around the world, including 675,000 lives in the United States between 1918 and 1919. Steven Spielberg has also said that this was his favorite film of all times. Uh, George hopes to go to college to learn how to build things. In real life, Jimmy Stewart actually majored in architecture at Princeton University. The iconic scene where Jimmy Stewart's character runs through a snow-swept Bedford Falls was actually filmed on a scorching July day. And you know something I never understood is this was released January of 1947, so it was after Christmas. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. you think they would have tried to push it out to get it yeah, you would, Yeah, you would think. I see uh, it's amazing. And you even see it nowadays on TV if you watch Hallmark movies. And some of them, as you could tell, it's they're bundled up like it's cold, but you don't see no breath. Some of them, they do have it in there where they do actually film it when it's cold. So a lot of that stuff, that uh, the magic of Hollywood to to uh, to bring the winter, even to, even when it's um, middle of June or July. Uh, the film was shot within 90 days. Um, in the scene at the dance in the high school gym, when George Bailey first sees Mary and approaches her, the young man talking to Mary is Carl Alfalfa Switzer. Alfalfa of Little Rascal fame is in the uncredited role of Freddie Othello. He is also in the scene where he turns the key that opens the gym floor to reveal the swimming pool. So, still up to his ta- antics, it looks like. Um, according to an interview with Carolyn Grimes, the name Zuzu comes from Zuzu Ginger Snaps. George makes reference to his, this near the end of the movie where he says to Zuzu at the top of the stairs, Zuzu, my little ginger snap. Now, <laughs> there's another name cl- close to that that's a demon from, I think, Exorcist. <laughs> so, so, so I was hoping it wasn't from that. <laughs> uh, this was selected by the Vatican uh, for the values category of its list of 45 great films. <laughs> um, the film has two lines of secret dialogue spoken quietly through a door. They can be heard when amplifying the volume and are also explicitly depicted in the closed captioning. The lines occur at the end of the scene set in Peter Bailey's private office where ba- uh, with Bailey and his son George and Potter and his goon present. After George raves to Potter that you can't say that about my father and he is ushered out of the room by his father, then George is shown standing outside the office door. At that moment, uh, George overhears the following two lines of dialogue through the glass pane of the door behind him. Potter. What's the answer? Peter Bailey. Potter, you just humiliated me in front of my own son. Or in front of my son. Uh, Henry Travers, who plays Clarence, also starred in the movie The Bells of St. Mary in 1945 as Horace P. Bogardus. When George Bailey passes a movie theater towards the end of the movie, the film is being showcased on the marquee. Have you ever seen it? No, have you? I think so. <laughs> you think? Well, it's been a long time. I don't know. Uh, there are 42 rings uh, heard throughout the course of the film. So if Clarence is right, 42 angels have gotten their wings. Uh, the bed for fall is set made up of 20 transplanted uh, oak trees. And for the winter scenes, 3,000 tons of shaved ice, 300 tons of gypsum, 300 tons of plaster, and 6,000 gallons of chemicals. It's made use of sets originally designed for uh, CIMAR Cimarron in 1931, and it had a working bank and a tree liner centered parkway. Pigeons, cats, and dogs were allowed to roam. The mammoth set to give it a live uh, or lived in field. Because the story covers different seasons and an alternate town, the set was extremely adaptable. 
Filming began on April 15, 1946 and ended on July 27, 1946, exactly on schedule for the 90-day deadline. Um, only two of uh, the locations have survived, though, the gymnasium at the Beverly Hills High School and the Martini House at 4587 Viral Road in what is now the city of La Canada, Flintridge. Then and now both locations are within Los Angeles City, California. The term Potter's Field is often used to refer to municipal cemeteries where paupers and unidentified, unidentified bodies are interred. At one point in the film, the Potter housing project at Bedford Falls is referred to as Potter's Field. <laughs> you got anything to throw in there so far? No, go ahead. Well, let me know if you have something I'll, to say. I'll, I know you're chomping at the bit. No, I'm just interrupting. Huh? I'll just interrupt you when I get Oh, okay. Uh, Potter and his bodyguards are always dressed the same. The exception is the scene where Potter's bodyguard wheels Potter into the bank. Potter's bodyguard is wearing a scarf while Potter isn't. Potter's wagon driver also dresses like him. Now, here's a question for you. Did they ever say why Potter was in a wheelchair? Mm, not that I can remember. Me either. Uh, Clarence's boss, named Franklin in the novelization, presumably named after a recently deceased Franklin Roosevelt, describes life as the greatest gift in one of the opening scenes. This was the title of the 1944 story which inspired the film. Uh, let's see here. Clarence's voice is heard in the opening scenes, but he doesn't appear in flesh until the last 30 minutes of the film and is on screen for only about 15 minutes total. Which I thought was interesting because everything you see, if you've never seen this movie, you just see clips or whatever. It's always about Clarence and him, you know what I mean? And yeah. see, he's, he's one of the main stars and he's only there for a short amount of time. In 1947, an FBI analyst submitted without comment an additional to a running memo on communist infiltration of the motion picture industry. Recording the opinion of an industry sources who said that this film's obvious attempt to discredit bankers is a common trick used by communists. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is wrong with the people? Uh, Gloria Graham was cast as Violet Bick after MGM casting director Bill Grady showed some of her screen tests to Frank Capra. This is named by directors Rob Reiner and Edward Zwick as their favorite film in a poll taken by the AFI. This film was added to the Library of Congress, which you talked about in 1990. Uh, Kathleen, or Kathleen Lockhart, Anne Revere, Selena Royal, and Mary Young were considered for the role of Ma Bailey. Have you heard of any of those actresses? No. That's for my time. Not barely. Um, Thomas Mitchell was considered for Mr. Potter uh, before being cast as Uncle Billy. <laughs> um, let's see here. Well, it was said to only uh, be in uh, the only film in history to originate from a greeting card. This is a misunderstanding. The writer of the short story it is based from, Philip Van Dorn Stern, was unable to find a publisher. He then decided to make a Christmas card-style gift out of it and printed 200 copies, which he sent out to friends and family in December of 1943. Other actresses concerned for the role of Mary Bailey were Olivia de Havilland. What was she famous for? I've heard of her. She was in... Uh, she was in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, she was also in... Uh, there's an old movie, I don't know if you've ever seen this, called Lady in a Cage. <laughs> no. It's, and, uh, she was in, uh, I believe she was in Robin Hood the uh, uh, with Earl Flynn. Well, I don't know. Yeah, man, what, and you call yourself a movie person? I don't know. I'm just, I just I come on here to uh, get your ratings up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, Martha Scott and Anne Dvorak. Ginger Rogers, do you know who that is? Yeah. All right. Allegedly turned down the role because she thought the character too bland. When Rogers penned her autobiography, she questioned that decision by asking the readers, foolish, you say. <laughs> um, 
George was born in 1907, just one year before actor Jimmy Stewart, who plays him. So pretty much got him right on cue. Uh, bells crop up throughout the entire film in the intro music and other background music, Christmas decorations, cash registers, telephones ringing, a bell on Mr. Potter's desk, the studio logo, doorbells, the bells of St. Mary, etc. is all playing at the local cinema. The score was issued by Telarc uh, on an album which included music from two other Christmas favorites, Miracle on 34th Street in 1947 and A Christmas Carol from 1951. Uh, David Newman conducts the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra from Dmitry Tiomikin's Reconstructed Score. I also read somewhere, I think it's in here, that they used something from uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1939, I think. Uh, well, uh, let me ask you, did, did they ever have anybody else in mind to play George Bailey? We're, we're getting there. Okay. We're getting there. I, I'm just we're, 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 yeah. As you could tell, we had problems with printers and everything earlier, so <laughs> my notes are a little j- j- Um the newspaper that Bert Cop is holding when George asks Ernie, the cab driver, for a ride has the headline, Smith Wins Nomination. This is possibly referring to Frank Capper and Jimmy Stewart's previously filmed Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 1939. Uh, it could also have referred to Governor Al Smith's winning of the Democratic Party's presidential uh, nomination in 1920, which would fit the same timeline of the film. Uh, in the original draft of the script, the character uh, Potter did not exist. Uh, George was actually a uh, corrupt and powerful politician. Um, where basically it would have turned into like a horror film because the climax of the film showed George Bailey fighting his evil doppelganger in a battle that resulted in the death of the evil George Bailey when he was thrown off the bridge. <laughs> Talk about an alternate, alternate universe. Uh, two of Sesame Street's 1969 Muppets, Bert and Ernie, share the names with the film's cop and cab driver, respectively, but it is believed to be just a coincidence. Carol Grimes, who played Zuzu, insisted that the two Muppets were named as much or as such because the movie was Jim Henson's favorite. Henson's writing party, Jerry Jewell, insisted to the San Francisco Chronicle that Ernie and Bert were not named after the movie's characters. Jewell said, I was not present at the naming, but I was always um, positive the rumor was incorrect. Despite his many talents, Jim had no memory for details like this. He knew the movie, of course, but would not have remembered the cop and the cab driver. I was not able to confirm this with Jim before he died, but shortly thereafter, I spoke to John Stone, uh, Sesame Street's 1969's first producer and head writer and a man largely responsible for the show's format. He assured me that Ernie and Bert were named one day when he and Jim were studying the prototype puppets. They decided that one of them looked like an Ernie and the other one looked like a Bert. And the movie <laughs> characters' names are purely coincidental. How do you look at something? Uh, that looks like a Bert. <laughs> Ernie. Um... Joseph Walker was the original cinematographer, while Joseph F. Byrock was the assistant. When Fane Capra asked Walker to continue shooting as the sun went down on James Stewart wandering through the streets of Bedford Falls, Walker refused. Capra then asked Byrock if he could shoot the scene, and Byrock replied, I can. Walker was released by Capra. The scene was shot, and Byrock was promoted to cinematographer. Both Walker and Byrock share credits of the film. Byrock listed above Walker. Uh, Mr. Potter is based on Ebenezer Scrooge of A Christmas Carol, with both characters being greedy, heartless, misers. Potter, like Scrooge, is also implied to be a ruthless moneylender. In fact, Lionel Barrymore was to play Scrooge in A Christmas Carol in 1938, which instead starred his good friend Reginald Owen because Barrymore was forced to withdraw due to arthritis, but did later voice Ebenezer Scrooge in radio adaptations. Uh, Clarence Oddbody was born in May 1653. (laughs) Um... Fank Capper disagreed with the cinematographer Victor Milner and eventually had him replaced. Some of Milner's scenes were reshot by Joseph Walker, but due to Capper's major falling out with him in every or in the production, Milner was not credited on screen for any of his work. 
Um, here you go. Man, uh, many of Dimitri Tomlin's cues for the score were placed with experts from the RKO Music Library, included cues from Roy Webb, Lee Harline, and Alfred Newman's Hallelujah from The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939. Have you seen that one? Maybe. <laughs> there's, there's, there's several of, the, of them movies, too. Uh, all right, here you go. This is what you wanted to know. Um, this is what you, this is uh, this is who was considered, I think, for Mr. Potter. Let me know if you know any of these. Walter Abel, Leah Ames, Edward Arnold, George Bancroft, Edgar Barrier. Maybe George Rancoff. I may have heard What did of him. he play? I don't know. But uh, Charles Bickford, Edgar Buchanan, Louise Calhoun. Edgar Buchanan played on Petticoat Junction, Uncle Joe. Okay. Louis Calhoun, Charles Coburn. Right? You know him? No. No, it's James Coburn. Right. Thank you. Ray Collins, George Caloris, Albert Decker, Charles Dingle. Not Charles Ingalls, Charles Dingle. Uh, Dan Duria, Richard Gaines, Charles Halton, Henry Hull, Victor Jory, Otto Kruger, Gene Lockhart, Raymond Massey, Vincent Price. Yeah, Vincent Price, Raymond, was it Raymond Massey? Uh, let me see. Who's one before Vincent Price? Uh, Raymond Massey. I think I've heard of him. I couldn't tell you what he's in, but I think. Uh, Vincent Price, then we have Claude Rains. <laughs> The Invisible Man, uh, Stanley Ridges, and Lee Tracy were all considered for the, Mr. Potter. Lyle Barrymore won the role because he was a famous Ebenezer Scrooge in radio dramatizations of A Christmas, Car- uh, Christmas Carol. And as Vincent added, Price could have pulled it off, I think. <laughs> uh, Claude Rains probably could have too. But as a uh, uh, Barrymore had as a bonus, he had worked with Capper before on You Can't T- uh, You Can't Take It With You in 1938. Myrna Dell, Gene Porter, and Ann so- uh, Southern were considered for Violet Black. Do you know any of those? No. Uh, this film is actually included on Roger Deber's great movies list, which it's hard to do these days with that guy. Well, well one, he's dead, but I'm just saying just to impress him that much. This was Adriana Caslotti's uh, final film acting role. She has a cameo as the singer in Martini's Bar. Uncle Billy's pets are Jimmy, a crow always seen at the bank, hamsters, a dog, birds, a squirrel, a monkey. Uh, George had a dog when he still lived with his parents, and one could see a birdcage in his second home, and the Martinis own a goat. The Bailey Park scenes were filmed in the Crescentia Valley at far western end of the San Gabriel Valley. Um, Lorraine Day was offered the role of Mary, but had to decline because she was already too busy working on The Locket in 1946. 350,000 feet of film were used. Uh, here we go. John Alexander, Irving Bacon, Wally Brown, James Burke, Sam Levine, Barton McLean, Robert Mitchum. You know who that is? Yeah. Who is he? He played in a lot of westerns. And Walter Sandy were served for Bertha Cop. Jimmy Stewart reprised his uh, role in a one hour radio version for NBC Radio Theater in 1949. Henry Fonda was in the running to play George Bailey. Oh. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Uh, he, is, he probably could have pulled it off. Yeah. This is included on the 1001 movies you must see before you die. Um, let's see here. Uh, Violet is almost never seen without a hat or something in her hair. The exception is George and Mary's wedding. Uh, when jo- George is running through the rowdy section of Pottersville, uh, one of the signs he passes says, Welcome Jitterbug. The Jitterbug dance was often frowned upon. No Jitterbug allowed signs were not uncommon in respectable establishments. Walter Brennan... W.C. Fields, Barry Fitzgerald, Hugh Herbert, Edward Everett Horton, Adolphe Minju, Victor Moore, and Roland Young were all considered for the role of Uncle Billy. 
W.C. Fields probably could have done that. You know Walter Brennan is, don't you? No. I've heard of him, but... He was um, in an early TV series called The Real McCoys. He was the grandpa in that. He also played in a later on in a Western TV series called The Guns of Will Sonnet. Because he'd always use this phrase in there. It was him and his grandson. What were those Westerns? Yeah, it was well, him. That, that it was a series. Him and his like son Westerns. was... It's not John Wayne. Whoa. Well, I said I don't like Westerns. Well, I know. Except Shenandoah. I don't know if you really consider that a Western, but it's got Jimmy Stewart in it, so. So you're just, anyhow, he'd done a, yeah, he would he, he would have been good. Okay. Uh, the fictional town of Bedford Falls is set in upstate New York, as noted on a telegram, and not in New England, as often misstated. Hence the mentions of Buffalo, girls, won't you come out tonight, and <laughs> Rochester. Sarah Allgood, Helen Broderick, Jane Darrell, Ruth Donnelly. Connie Gilchrist, Hattie McDaniel, Una O'Connor, and Irene Ryan were all considered for the role of Anne. Uh, here we go. In 1986, the colorized version of the film released to significant controversy, which, you know, I have this uh, colorized version. We were just watching a little bit of it. Uh, the genesis stemmed from a reneged deal between Frank Capra and Colorization, Inc., the producers of this version. Capra was to have invested in half of the colorization work in exchange for creative control and part ownership. However, Colorization realized that since the film was supposedly in the public domain, they could do all the work and let Capra go. That helped to create an outcry among filmmakers and their supporters that led to all subsequent colorized versions of films display a notice stating that they were not authorized by the picture's creators. This version was pulled from distribution in 1993 and the film's copyright was restored. But a new colorized version was produced under the authorization of Paramount Pictures and released in 2007. Henry Travers was considered for Mr. Potter, Peter Bailey, and Mr. Gower before being cast as Clarence. Um, let's see here. Don Barclay, Steve Brody, Edward Brophy, Alan Carney, Walter Catlett, William Demarest, Wallace Ford, John Ireland, Frank Jinks, Charles Red Marshall, Frank McHugh, and Walter Sanday were considered for Ernie Bishop. For a number of years after NBC acquired exclusive broadcast rights in the 1990s, the film was broadcast once a year on NBC. Starting in 2000, uh, 2016, NBC's corporate sibling, USA Network, showed the film in a marathon over the weekend, December 9th through 11th. Most of the film is actually set in a flashback, including when George has his money missing due to Mr. Potter stealing and chewing out his family. In fact, the only scenes that take place in the present time are the beginning when George's family, neighbors, and friends pray to God to help George, uh, George saving Clarence before wishing he never existed, and the ending when he reunites with his family and friends. Thurston Hall, Russell Hicks, Moroni Olson, and Tom Tully were considered for Peter Bailey. Irving Bacon, E.J. Ballantine, uh, Jimmy Conlon, Harry Davenport, Charles Grapewin, Charles Halton, Gene Hersholt, Samuel S. Hines, Guy Kibbe, Percy Kilbride, Donald Meek, Philip Merivale, Reginald Owen, John Quaylen, and Erskine Sanford were considered for Mr. Gower. Have you heard of any of those people? No. <laughs> Don't be so, so, I, I could so detailed. I could put my name in there because nobody would have heard of him either. <laughs> uh, Louis Albernini, Fortunio Bonavo, Bonanova, Joseph Calia, Chef Milani, Nestor Pava, Frank Pugla, Puglia, and Robert G. Vignola were considered for Mr. Martini. <laughs> Why are you laughing for? 
Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of foreign names there. I Terrence did. Oh, yeah, well, all right. You know, I know it wasn't going to bring him up either, but I'm glad you did. You're, <laughs> you're making him proud. <laughs> uh, Bill Goodwin, Van Heflin, John Howard, Dean Jagger, Alan Jocelyn, Gordon Oliver, Gene Raymond, Kent Smith, and Philip Warren were considered for the role of Sam Wainwright. Uh, let's see here. We could skip that. That's a long one. Um, the director, Shay Mark, Frank Capra, Jimmy the Raven. This bird appeared in all the Capra movies <laughs> after 1938. Also, uh, for, from uh, director Trey Mark, was one of the reasons H.B. Warner got the part of the pharmacist, Mr. Gower, was that he actually studied medicine before going into acting. He was also in some of Frank Capra's other films, including, let's see if you've heard of any of these, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936. No. Lost Horizons in 1937. I've heard of the name, but I haven't seen it. You Can't Take It With You in 1938. I've heard of that And Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. I've heard of that. The character's name Gower derived from Capra's employer, Columbia Pictures, which was located on Gower Street for many years. Also on Gower Street was a drugstore that was a favorite for studio employees. Uh, The scene on the bridge where Clarence saves George was filmed on a back lot on a day where the temperature was 90 degrees Fahrenheit. This is why Jimmy Stewart is visibly sweating in (laughs) in a few scenes. Um, Here's something interesting. Mr. Potter is never caught as the thief who embezzled the $8,000, which he apparently gets to keep. This was very unusual for a Hollywood film of at the time. The Motion Picture Production Code, properly known as the Hayes Code, after Will H. Hayes, then the president of the Motion Picture um, Producers and Distributors of America, uh, from 1945 until September of 2019, in the motion picture, um, then known as the Hayes Office, the film industry censor code required that criminals must always be shown to be either punished or made to repent by the end of the film. The incident that George says God on the bridge just starts snowing shows that he's back in real, the real world. Um, after the run on the banks, George and Uncle Billy meet in the building and loan uh, back office where George receives a call from Potter, after which the scene shows George looking to a framed picture on the wall of his deceased father with a caption below that reads, All you can take with you is that which you give away. Sam Wainwright is the only one of George's close friends or family member whose fate in the world in which he was never born is not revealed. Jean Arthur was Frank Capra's first choice to play the part of Mary. However, she declined the role since she was already committed to a Broadway play. She previously co-starred with Jimmy Stewart in two other Frank Capra films. Mr. Smith goes to Washington and you can't take it with you. I'm going to have to watch that. You can't take it with you. There's all the good stuff about that. Uh, Mary tells George she'll, she'd married him to keep from being an old maid. When George sees the alternate, uh, the reality where he's not born, Mary is in Pottersville, of course, as an old maid. She didn't marry. Um... There are portraits of Potter and Peter Bailey uh, in each other's respective offices. Peter is a posthumous one. There's also the drawing of George at his home. Although Violet catches Mary's bouquet, she never marries. Uh, Janie asks her mother is if now is the right time to play Hark the Herald Angel Sings in the final scene, according to the novelization. George thought it was the most beautiful carry he had ever heard, and it brought him close to tears. Mr. Carter thought the whole thing ridiculous before giving up some of his own money. Harry was also due back the next day, but wanted to come home earlier. And when he said George was the richest man in town, George agreed. When George picked up The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, he thought Clarence's handwriting was old-fashioned. The novelization's last line is, attaboy, Clarence. And when Bert takes a shot at George, the bullets take out two of the three letters in the Pottersville sign. Um, but the, in the novelization, it only takes two. All right, Art Toast. Give me well, your thoughts on this film. Well, before we get there, we never... You need to tell him about Clarence getting his wings at the end of the show. But, well, I didn't want to ruin it for him, but... Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Well, no, it's too late now. No, no, you did. Um, 
basically, when George gets back and he's repented and he gets all that money, um, uh, his little girl says, um, you know, my teacher says, because there's like a bell on their tree, uh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. And he's like, attaboy, Clarence, or whatever. He basically, is, the bell was ringing, the bell was ringing for yeah. Clarence. So, not Terrence, Clarence, <laughs> just for the record. Yeah, no one get him confused. Again, it's one of the, actually, as old as I am, I've never watched this probably till the late 1990s. It is a long film, but uh, it's it, you'll really enjoy it if you sit and watch it very well. That's why it's one of the top movies of all time. Jimmy Stewart, great actor, probably one of the best. Uh, does good in whatever he does. And so if you haven't seen this, it's a must watch. It's a good Good holiday uh, film to gather your family and to watch that, and uh, you'll you'll really enjoy it. And your thoughts, sir? Um, every time I try to sit down and watch this movie, it would be where I'd catch it on TV. I'd only get to catch part of it. So the, I thought Clarence was a main part of it. I thought he was in the whole movie, but that's not the case. Uh, it's more about George Bailey's life and his uh, overcoming his obstacles. And I think that the message that this puts out is. Um, you're important to somebody, even though you may not know you're important and you, you don't know how your life, if you weren't here, would affect somebody else around you. Um, if, like if you had never been born, the different circumstances that your life would have took could have took the turn for the better or most of the time probably for the worst. Um, well, thank so, you. Are you talking to me or about the movie now? <laughs> well, if you weren't I'm here, I to, would be here. I'm about to cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you weren't here, I wouldn't be here. So, um, yeah, it's it's a very uh, clean movie, very heartfelt movie, um, very Christmassy movie, a very family oriented movie, and also shows like the corruption of the the banks, if you will. Um, it also shows that you know um, when you're down the most is when your friends come around to help you the the most. Um, very well done. Very, I mean, it drew me in. Uh, like I said, this is. The first time I probably sit down, well, actually the colorized version is the first time I sit down and watch it. And if, if you haven't seen the colorized version, the black and white one's okay, but the colorized version, there's just something about it that makes it makes vibrant. It more, makes it more clear right. or something, um, not as grainy looking. Right. And, and you can see like the blood on his, when he gets punched or whatever, you see he's got blood on his, his cheek and all that. I thought it was very well done. Um, but him and his, you know, Jimmy Stewart's just fantastic. Um, Clarence was a little off the wall at times. And then, like I said, at the beginning, you know, you didn't know where this was going because it looks like a painting with, uh, I think it's God and an angel talking. And then you see this, this star just doing loops and loops and all this. And it's Clarence because he's obviously a, uh, a misfit angel, if you will, that he's tried and tried to get his wings. And they've called upon him to get this. So uh, very well done. Um, would you like to say anything else? It is Christmas. Well, just, just remember this. No matter how good your life is or going there's always a Scrooge or a Potter or a Grinch or somewhere. <laughs> and so just spread the holiday cheer and and sometimes special things happen to them kind of people. Right. So, um, well, this is coming to the close of this. Uh, stay tuned because um, we have several more podcasters episodes coming up about this. I know we got Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. We've got Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances, Tom and Andrea from uh, We Drink and We Know Things. We've got because uh, uh, Leslie Fair from Because I Want to Know. We've got uh, the Yesteryear podcast with James and Beth. Uh, we've got ADZ giving something. I believe there's a couple more I might have missed around in there. But uh, stay tuned after this. They'll all be coming your way. So with that being said, I'm going to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. And 
thanks for all your support once again, and we'll see you on the flip side. Merry Christmas. And happy holidays. And that's a wrap. And cut. Congratulations. Keep it up, and let's see if you make it two years in a row. Neither one of you have done that yet. <laughs> Next in line, we have 80s Eve doing their Christmas episode with the Twilight Zone. Did y'all kick back, turn off the lights, shut your eyes, and enjoy the show. a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man it is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity it is the middle ground between light and shadow between science and superstition and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge this is the dimension of imagination it is an area which we call the twilight zone Hello, hello, hello. It's 80s E here on behalf of the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm speaking to you now because I would like to encourage you to check out the Twilight Zone segment of the podcast. Join in with Jimbo and I as we travel to the fifth dimension and unpack each episode. Right now, I would like to give you a background or a biography of sorts on the show's creator, Rod Serling. And because we are in the Christmas season, I wanted to give you a few audio snippets from the most recognizable Christmas episodes from The Twilight Zone, entitled The Night of the Meek. From Wikipedia, we read Rodman Edward Serling, born December 25, 1924, and died June 28, 1975, commonly known as Rod Serling, was an American screenwriter, playwright, television producer, and narrator, known for his live television dramas of the 1950s and his anthology television series, The Twilight Zone. Serling was active in politics, both on and off the screen, and helped from uh, form television industry standards. He was known as the angry young man of Hollywood, clashing with television executives and sponsors, over a wide range of issues, including censorship, racism, and war. Okay, let's talk about his early life a little bit. Serling was born, as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, on December 25, 1924, in Syracuse, New York, to a Jewish family. He was the second of two sons, born to Esther Cooper, a homemaker, and Samuel Lawrence Serling. Serling's father had worked as a secretary and an amateur inventor before his children were born, but took on his father-in-law's profession as a grocer to earn a steady income. Sam Serling later became a butcher after the Great Depression forced 
the store to close. Rod had an older brother, uh, a novelist, and aviation writer, Robert J. Serling. Serling spent most of his youth about 70 miles south of Syracuse in the city of Binghampton after his family moved there in 1926. His parents encouraged his talents as a performer. Sam Serling built a small stage in the basement where Rod often put on plays with or without neighborhood children. His older brother, Robert, recalled that at the age of six or seven, Rod entertained himself for hours by acting out dialogue from pulp magazines or movies he had seen. Rod would often ask questions without waiting for their answers. On a two-hour trip from Binghampton to Syracuse, the rest of the family remained silent to see if Rod would notice their lack of participation. He did not, and talked nonstop throughout the entire car ride. In elementary school, Serling was seen as the class clown and dismissed by many of his teachers as a lost cause. However, his seventh-grade English teacher, Helen Foley, encouraged him to enter the school's public speaking extracurriculars. He joined the debate team and was a speaker at his high school graduation. He began writing for the school newspaper, in which, according to the journalist Gordon Sander, he established a reputation as a social activist. He was also interested in sports and excelled at tennis and table tennis. When he attempted to join the varsity football team, he was told that he was too small at 5 foot 4 inches tall. Serling was interested in radio and writing at an early age. He was an avid radio listener, especially interested in thrillers, fantasy, and horror shows. Arch Obler, or Obler and Norman Corwin were two of his favorite writers. He also did some staff work at a Binghampton radio station, tried to write, but never had anything published. He was accepted into college during his senior year of high school. However, the United States was involved in World War II at the time, and Serling decided to enlist rather than to start college immediately after he was graduated from Binghampton Central High School in 1943. As editor of the high school newspaper, Serling encouraged his fellow students to support the war effort. He wanted to leave school before graduation to join the fight, but his civics teacher talked him into waiting for graduation. War is a temporary thing, Gus Youngstrom told him. It ends. Education doesn't. Without your degree, where will you be after the war? Serling enlisted in the U.S. Army the morning after high school graduation following his brother, Robert. In November of 1944, his division first saw combat landing in the Philippines. The 11th Airborne Division would not be used as paratroopers, however, but as light infantry during the Battle of Layette. It helped mop up after the five divisions that had gone ashore earlier. For a variety of reasons, Serling was transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, nicknamed the Death Squad, for its high casualty rate. According to Sergeant Frank Lewis, leader of the Demolition Squad, he screwed up somewhere along the line. Apparently, he got on someone's nerves. Lewis also judged that Serling was not suited to be a field soldier. He didn't have the wits or the aggressiveness required for combat. At one point, Lewis 
Serling and others were in a firefight trapped in a foxhole. As they waited for darkness, Lewis noticed that Serling had not loaded or reloaded any of his extra magazines. Serling sometimes went exploring on his own against orders and got lost. Now I'd like to skip ahead a little ways to his post-war life, education, and family. After being discharged from the Army in 1946, Serling worked as a, or at a rehabilitation hospital while recovering from his wounds that he sustained in war. His knee troubled him uh, for years. Later, his wife, Carol, became accustomed to the sound of him falling down the stairs when his knee buckled under his weight. When he was fit enough, he used the federal GI Bill's educational benefits and disability payments to enroll in the physical education program at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. He had been accepted to Antioch, his brother's alma mater, while in high school. His interest led him to the theater department and then to broadcasting. He changed his major to literature and earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1950. I was kind of mixed up and restless, and I kind of liked their work for a term and go to school for a term setup, he recounted. As a part of his studies, Surly became active in the campus radio station, an experience which proved useful in his future career. He wrote and directed and acted in many radio programs on campus, then around the state as part of his work study. Here, he met Carol Louise, or Carol Kramer, a fellow student who later became his wife. Uh, at first, she refused to date him because of his campus reputation as a ladies' man, but she eventually changed her mind. He joined in the Unitarian Church in college, which allowed him to marry Kramer on July 31, 1948. They had two daughters named Jody and Anne. Serling began his professional writing career in 1950 when he earned $75 a week as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. While at WLW, he continued to freelance. He sold several radio and television scripts to WLW parent company, Crosley Broadcasting Corporation. After selling the scripts, Serling had no further involvement with them. They were sold by Crosley to local radio stations across the U.S. Serling moved from radio to television as a writer for WKRC-TV in Cincinnati. His duties included writing testimonial advertisements for dubious medical remedies and scripts for a comedy duo. He continued at WKRC after graduation and amidst mostly dreary day-to-day -day work, also created a series of scripts for a live television program, The Storm, as well as for other anthology dramas, a format for which was in demand by networks based in New York. Following a full day of classes or in later years' work, he spent evenings on his own writing he sent manuscripts to publishers and received 40 rejection slips during these early years. Okay, let's skip ahead a few years and uh, focus in on what Rod is most known for, and that's The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone uh, debuted on October 2, 1959. For this series, Serling fought hard to get and maintain creative control. He hired scriptwriters he respected, such as Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont. 
In an interview, Serling said the show's science fiction format would not be controversial with sponsors, network executives, or the general public, and would escape censorship unlike the earlier script for Playhouse 90. Serling drew on his own experience for many episodes, frequently about boxing, military life, and airplane pilots. The Twilight Zone incorporated his social views on racial relations, somewhat veiled in the science fiction and fantasy elements of the show. Occasionally, the point was quite blunt, such as in the episode I Am the Night, Color Me Black, in which racism and hatred causes a dark cloud to form in the American South and spread across the world. Many Twilight Zone stories reflected his views on gender roles featuring quick-thinking, resilient women as well as shrewish, nagging wives. Now I'm going to read a segment uh, from a book entitled Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. The fact that Serling is identified almost solely in the relation to the Twilight Zone testifies to the gigantic imprint the series has made on the pop culture landscape. The Twilight Zone aired its final original episode on June 19, 1964. Over the next five decades, the series spawned a feature film, two revival television series, novels, short story collections, multiple comic book series, a long-running magazine, and several lengthy scholarly analysis. Offering superlatives to describe the Twilight Zone would be superfluous. Serling created and hosted the series, served as its executive producer, wrote a seemingly impossible 92 of the 156 episodes, and won two of his six Emmy Awards for his work on the show. If the Twilight Zone were the only thing Serling accomplished in his career, his legacy would be a brilliant one. All writing is, in part, perhaps unconsciously or subconsciously, a reflection of a writer's personality. It's certainly a reflection of his views as to the human value. God knows it's a reflection of his political thinking, for the most part. That was a quote from Rod Serling in 1971. The battlefield and the boxing ring are two of the most common settings in the Serling body of work. The athlete, often but not always a boxer, who must face the fact that he is past his prime, was a favorite character type for Serling to dramatize. If an athlete were inappropriate for the type of short story Serling wished to tell, he might substitute a burned-out business executive. Time travel was a favorite plot device, also one of my favorites, just as a side note, especially if it could provide the burned-out executive a second chance at a less stressful and more fulfilling life. Recurring Serling-esque themes include age versus youth, sensitivity versus insensitivity, individual morality versus mob mentality, and the destructive effects of prejudice. Connecting fictional elements to a writer's biography can be risky, but in Serling's case, doing so is relatively straightforward. As director John Frankenheimer once said, there was a lot of Rod in everything he ever wrote. Rod Serling on Christmas. Christmas is about more than barging up and down a department store aisles 
and pushing people out of the way. Christmas is another thing, finer than that, richer, finer, truer. And it should come with patience and love, charity and compassion. A word to the wise, whether their concern be pediatrics or geriatrics, whether they crawl on hands and knees and wear diapers or walk with a cane and comb their beards. There is a wondrous magic to Christmas and there is a special power reserved for little people. In short, there is nothing mightier than the meek. And that's an excerpt from The Night of the Meek from The Twilight Zone. Now I'd like to take some time to play for you a little bit of audio from the episode entitled The Night of the Meek, where Art Carney, who plays uh, Henry Corwin, or a.k.a. Santa Claus, is confronted by his boss, Mr. Dundee, who is played by John Fielder. And you'll hear this exchange. This is sort of like the meat of the episode, and it sort of encapsulates um, Rod Serling, his vision of what he was trying to convey here in this episode. It's really summarized really well right here in this particular scene. So I'm going to play that now. Mr. Chris Kringle of the Lower Decks. Since it is only a few hours till closing time, it is my distinct pleasure to tell you that there is no more need for your services. You have had it. Now get out of here. I'll be very glad. And get that crummy red suit back to wherever you rented it from before you really tie one on and destroy it for good and all. You drunk! Thank you very much, Mr. Dundee. As to my drinking, this is indefensible, and you have my abject apologies. I find of late that I have very little choice in the matter of expressing emotions. I can either drink or I can weep, and drinking is so much more subtle. Will you please leave? But it's for my insubordination I was not rude to that woman. Someone should remind her that Christmas is more than barging up and down department store aisles and pushing people out of the way. Now, Corwin... Someone has to tell her that Christmas is another thing finer than that. Richer, finer, truer. And it should come with patience and love, charity, compassion. That's what I would have told her if you'd give me the chance. Well, how philosophical, Mr. Corwin. Now, perhaps as your parting word, you can tell us how we can go about living up to these wondrous Yule standards which you have so graciously laid down for us. I don't know how to tell you, Mr. Dundee. I don't know at all. All I know is that I'm an aging, purposeless relic of another time. And I live in a dirty rooming house on a street filled with hungry kids and shabby people where the only thing to come down the chimney on Christmas Eve is more poverty. Will you keep your voice down? You know another reason why I drink, Mr. Dundee? So that when I walk down the tenements, I can really think it's the North Pole and the children are elves and that I'm really Santa Claus. 
bringing them a bag of wondrous gifts for all of them. I just wish, Mr. Dundee, on one Christmas, only one, that I could see some of the hopeless ones and the dreamless ones. Just on one Christmas, I'd like to see the meek inherit the earth. Now, it's really unfortunate that this is one of the few episodes that was actually recorded on videotape as opposed to film, and that was due to a cost-cutting measure. Uh, but I don't want to dig dig too deeply into uh, the episode before Jimbo and I have a chance to really unpack it uh, more thoroughly. Jimbo and I want to send out a special thank you to all the podcast listeners, and it is our hope that you are enjoying the Twilight Zone podcast that we are sending your way. We also want to wish each and every one of you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And with that, I will leave you with Rod Serling's postscript uh, to the episode, The Night of the Meek. A word to the wise to all the children of the 20th century, whether their concern be pediatrics or geriatrics, whether they crawl on hands and knees and wear diapers or walk with a cane and comb their beards. There's a wondrous magic to Christmas and there's a special power reserved for little people. In short, there's nothing mightier than the meek. And a Merry Christmas to each and all. Wow, now that brings back some memory. <laughs> Back to Mrs. Bars would uh, leave the house from time to time. I could sneak in a, a few minutes of television. Don't get to do that much anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> Next in line, we have Sarah Dionatis. Now, Sarah, she does not have a podcast. But let me tell you what, this girl can tell a story. But go ahead, enjoy this quick story from Sarah, who I am pretty sure is on the good list. Hello everyone, I just want to thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share a story for you, for your special Christmas podcast. I, My name is Sarah Donatis and I do not have a podcast of my own. However, I do a lot of work with Hillbilly Horror House, run by Tim Mullins, and the opportunity popped up to give an entry for your podcast, and this actual story I'm about to read came to me at that point. So this story is written for you guys, and you are the first to hear it. I hope you enjoy it. Um, This is not a typical story that I write, but um, I felt compelled to share and write on this topic, and I feel it's very important because hope is something that we all have to hold on to, uh, especially this year. I want to give a little special shout-out thank you to Tim Mullins uh, from Hillbilly Horror House for um, editing this and putting a little background music so you're not just stuck with my voice only. Um, and I hope you really, truly enjoy this this little missive of mine. The story is called The Gift.
As she pulled off the freeway, she couldn't help but fight the lump that was welling up in her throat. The thousands of times she came this way, but this time was different. And so it will be every time in the future, too. The pine trees stood in their perfect rows along the interstate, and soon she will see the tiny town that held so many fond memories. Another left-hand turn, down about three miles, and then a right. Ah, yes, the two-lane highway that will bring her home. Home, that word means something altogether different now. As she drove the winding road, certain landmarks popped up. The old Episcopal church with the steeple that seemed so high it could tickle the bottom of every cloud that dares come near. The sprawling property surrounding the church housed one of the most beautiful cemeteries this side of the Rockies. Each stone perfectly kept with the grass brazen green and trimmed during the summer. Past that church began the small city, the corner store that has the best frozen Cokes, the bar where Daddy used to take her for a hamburger and root beer while he had a hamburger and a cold one, the clothing store that had something for everyone, and the tiny grocery store that has been run by the same family for over 100 years. The one and only stoplight in the city, of course, was red. It gave her a moment to breathe. Once green, she continued on, just about 30 minutes from her destination. Hmm. For the first time in her life, she felt apprehension welling up in her. The one thing she noticed, finally, was the decorations all around her. The shop windows, the church, and even the lights that lined the main street through town. She kept forgetting it was almost Christmas. She didn't feel much like celebrating this year. But there was something egging her on. A light of some sort in her soul. She would soon find out that this was hope. And she would rely on that for the rest of her days. Just on the other side of town was a beautiful little Baptist church. Of course, its name was the First Baptist Church. She felt her mouth turning up as she recalled many a discussion with her father about who would call their church the Second Baptist Church. What was that sound? Was she chuckling? Hmm. A noise she hasn't made since that fateful day in November when the phone rang. It was a brisk November morning. She got ready for work and was about to leave the home when the phone rang. It was Uncle Marty telling her that her father was gone. They assumed a heart attack got him. An autopsy confirmed their suspicions. She ran to him to say goodbye before they prepared him for the funeral. Oh, he looked handsome in his uniform. A decorated soldier, so very proud. He took to single parenting like a duck to water. Mom was taken in Afghanistan when her truck hit an IED, sending her flying. She managed to save another soldier's life before succumbing to her own injuries. Nothing like being 13 and finding out your mama is gone. Dad picked up the slack and to his horror was the first one she told when her new monthly friend arrived. 
He wandered into the store, eyes as wide as saucers. Betty, at the desk, knew the look and silently took his arm and gave him everything he would need. He was just the best father, even when she lost her mind and would yell at him. He was picky with the boys she brought home, too. Her thoughts stopped as she made one more turn to the right. The lake air hung heavy today. It was a bit warmer than the snow-covered ground, and the fog was noticeable. Her heart skipped a beat as she pulled into the quarter-mile driveway and weaved through the forest that she memorized throughout her childhood. All the climbing trees, the hideout where she could make out with her boyfriend, and the place she fell and broke her arm. The trees opened up, and there it was, her childhood home, her daddy's home. She hadn't been there in a couple years, but the old girl looked the same. The gravel driveway changed over to the black top Daddy, Uncle Marty, and her put in about ten years ago. Goodness, that was the summer she got the great job 300 miles from here. Her stomach dropped again. If only she had it in her heart to stay in this tiny town instead of making money. She could have been here when Daddy passed. She shook her head as if to remove the thought and put the car in park. The house was a nice size, 2,400 square feet, with plenty of room for a daddy and his daughter. She hesitated only a second before turning the key to cut the engine and climbing out of the car. Standing before that beautiful home, she took another breath and opened the front door. The house seemed untouched, and for a moment, she felt like her father would be coming around the corner to hug her. She didn't feel like an orphan. 34 was too old to be an orphan. But that is precisely what she was. As she walked around the home, all the wonderful memories came to her, and instead of sadness, as she feared, she found happiness. Daddy had a great life and would come see her at her home very often. In fact, he had just returned home from a visit a couple of weeks before he passed. She treasured that memory as well. Walking through the home, she felt, well, at home. The beautiful view of the lake out the kitchen window, the trees and deer tracks in the snow. Her bedroom was untouched, and all the house was neat as a pin, like usual. She made her way to the back of the house and stopped dead in her tracks. There, in the family room, was a beautifully decorated tree with all of the trimmings standing before her. Even odder still were gifts piled high under the tree so beautifully wrapped she feared touching them. Looking at the tags, they were all for her. She opened each one, smiling as they contained her favorite things. A sweater in the style and color she loved. Some socks for her always cold feet. New mittens and hat, obviously hand-knitted. A beautiful leather-bound journal. Two gifts remained, with a note on each one that read, Do not open before Christmas. She whispered, Okay, Daddy, I won't. 
Over the next week, she was busy cleaning the home and settling in. The neighbors all stopped by here and there to drop off food and give their condolences. She had to have received 10 invitations to join families for Christmas dinner and New Year's Eve parties. Uncle Marty came by too to check on her and to reminisce about all the good years. It was good to see Uncle Marty because he resembled her father and sounded like him too. Before he left, they made plans to meet between the holidays and also ice fish sometime that winter. She felt this tugging in her heart, like this was where she needed to be, but there were too many issues with work so far away and her home. On Thursday, two days before Christmas, she received a call on her cell from her company. They were making her position available as a work-from-home option. If she wished to do that, she could. Hmm, that is interesting, she thought. Saturday morning arrived. She made coffee and sat by the tree as it glowed red, green, yellow, and blue. With the drapes open, the sun shining on the snow, and the lake in all its frozen glory, just made the Christmas tree that much more spectacular. She thought of all the Christmas mornings with her daddy and how much fun they were. Deep breaths followed, trying to keep together. But then, in the silence, her gaze dropped from the tree in all of nature's glory down to under the tree. There, right there, were those two boxes. She climbed off the couch and sat on the floor like she did as a child. She slowly pulled one box onto her lap, unwrapping it very carefully as not to disturb anything. She found a beautiful box. Lifting the lid and looking inside, there was a binder. Every page in this binder contained pictures of her mother and her father as they grew up, and then all of the pictures of her life as well. Each one was beautifully placed and in order. At the end, was a little note. My beautiful daughter, your mother and I talked many times about making a book like this for you. When your mother passed, it just flew out of my mind. Well, because I was raising you. I finally got it done, and I hope you like it. Merry Christmas. Love, Dad. Tears of sadness and joy stained her cheeks. What an amazing thing for Dad to do. This gift would have been a huge treasure had Dad been there as she looked through it. But now, it is even more priceless. She kind of felt him there with her, too. She carefully returned the photo book to its box and turned her attention to the other box. It was small, about the size of a shoebox. It clinked a bit when she lifted it. She said out loud, What on earth? She slowly opened this box and in it was a key and another note neatly folded in an envelope. Hey, kiddo, I know you know this house is yours when the time comes that I pass away. I also know you have a perfectly good key of your own to this house. This key is not to the house, though. About ten years ago, when you moved, I got lonely and wanted to do some fun adventuring. 
Fred, next door, had a good piece of land with some pole barns on it that he wanted to sell. I had some extra cash, so I bought the land and the barns. I didn't tell you, because you always worried about me and my adventures. Well, in the bigger gray barn is a bunch of boats and other fun stuff. Oh, and in the back is a special little thing, something you always wanted. The key to the pole barn is in with this note. The key you are holding is to your gift. Merry Christmas. Love, Dad. She bundled up as quickly as her hands would let her and ran to Fred's, or Dad's, property. She knew the property well. Hell, Fred had a hand in raising her, too. Two bachelors raising a little girl. It's a good thing, too. She could hunt and fish and even shot 1911-45s competitively. Through the woods and tripping here and there, she ran as snow flew in her face and the cold air stung her cheeks. She came to the pole barn and struggled with the key in the old pad lock. It finally gave free after some very choice words were thrown at it. She used all her might to open the partially frozen door and stepped in. The air was stale and it was mostly dark inside. Aside from some streams of light that the few windows adorning the walls let in. There were boats, skis, and a very nice ice fishing shanty. Well, that will come in handy. And in the back corner, there was what appeared to be a car covered in a huge cloth tarp. Her heartbeat quickened. Could it be? With nervous hands, she quickly removed the cover and gasped. It was a 1966 Shelby GT350, the most beautiful Mustang to come off the line, in her opinion. It had a creamy white body with two blue stripes over top of her. She has always wanted one of those, ever since her dad took her to a car show in Detroit where the best muscle cars all lined up in a row, shining like new pennies. When they got to the GT350, she stopped in her tracks and stared at it for what seemed to be an hour. Her dad let her look as he chewed the fat with the owner. That moment, she told her dad that this car needed to be hers. She doubted he got that exact car, but she was so grateful that he got this one for her. Oh, she will look sexy driving all around town this summer in it. She thought for a moment and realized what it was she needed to do. Recovering the car and locking up the pole barn, she returned to the house and into the family room to look at the tree and smiled. Her father gave her the best gift ever, and none of it was tangible. He gave her a great life and she was going to stay. This was her home and will remain her home forever. She's not sure how her father pulled it off from heaven, but Dad pulled some strings, and she will remain in their house. Family is a gift. Hold them tight, tell them you love them, and know that you are important to your friends and family as well. In this very, very odd year of 2020, we cannot always see the people we want to see. So make a phone call, send the text, send a card or a letter. 
do the FaceTime or the Zoom. Make sure you let those people in your life that you love know how you feel. When I wrote this story and I was done with it, I felt overly compelled to share the suicide hotline. Typically, the holidays is a tough time of year. And being 2020 with the even tougher situation going on, this has been one of the hardest years a lot of people have faced. So I want to let you know that if you have ever had any thoughts that you are not needed on this earth or that you are not loved, I want you to know in your heart that those thoughts are not true. You are needed, you are wanted, and you are loved. If those thoughts have ever crept into your mind, I want you to reach out to family or friends and let them know. If you truly feel like you cannot talk to them about this, then you can call the suicide hotline. There is always someone there willing to help. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. If you don't feel like talking but you want to reach out to the Suicide Hotline, they do have a text line as well where you can send a text and someone will respond. That text number is 741-741. Again, you can text them at 741-741. Please know you are wanted. You are needed. You are a very important part of this world. And you are needed to remain a part of this world. I want to wish you and yours a very, very Merry Christmas, a very, very happy holiday season, and a very, very happy and prosperous and please, dear Lord, normal 2021. May you find happiness and joy in the next year and hope in your heart. God bless. (music) 